All right, ladies and gentlemen, we are going to begin with a word of prayer while we have this going on in the background. So let us pray. Father, we thank you for this night and this chance to gather in your name. We thank you for this book, The Screwtape Letters. We pray that you would bless our time tonight with your Holy Spirit, that you might guide us into your truth. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so if you have been paying attention, you should know what the name of this song is. So what's the name of it? Yes, my dancing day or tomorrow shall be my dancing day. But the question is, why am I playing it? It's pretty. It is pretty. No? Although that is true. All right. So, this particular song is a really ancient Christmas carol that recounts the story of the Incarnation, and it probably predates the medieval period, and then it was updated in the medieval period, and it was used in a lot of the medieval mystery plays that used to be presented as street dramas. And Lewis, of course, was a medievalist. And if, if you read very much Lewis, you'll see that one of the figures that Lewis loves to use, one of the analogies that he loves to use, uh, and he uses this for the Trinity as, as well as for various other things, is the dance. And that the, the kingdom of God is like this amazing, giant, complicated, beautiful, joyful dance. And this particular carol uses that conceit of the dance to explain the incarnation and how Satan is trying to disrupt the dance, but Jesus defeats him so that he cannot. And so it is peculiarly appropriate as we launch into Screwtape this week to think about that. Because what Screwtape is all about is disrupting the dance. The dance that brings joy, the dance that is life-giving, the dance that leads us more and more into the kingdom of God. So I would uh, commend to you to listen to this sometime on your own and look at what the lyrics are because it is profound found and it is beautiful and this king's college rendition of it is just gorgeous so um, i would commend that to you i could go on and on about that all night but i am not going to because we are going to actually look at the powerpoint for class and as we've said part of what we're going to be trying to do in here is looking at what Lewis says about standing against the devil's schemes. And you'll remember from what we've talked about before that part of what Lewis is about in this is making us realize that the devil is a liar, that he is all about seducing you with false promises. And so learning how to stand against the devil's schemes is, I think, really the purpose for which Lewis wrote Screwtape. And that goes very well with our theme verse, because as we read through this verse together tonight, I want you to notice how many times the word stand is in there. And those of you who were in the 530 service when Andrew was talking about holiness being set apart, that means being willing to be different, being willing to stand for what is right, even when it is uncomfortable. And Lewis is all about that as well. So let's say this together. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, 
and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And every time I read that, I'm just tempted to preach a sermon. Uh, there's so much good stuff in there. If you have not memorized that verse, please do yourself a favor and do that. It will be very helpful to you in walking this pilgrimage. So again, why are we doing screw tape letters? I just want to keep reiterating these points. One is understanding the battle that we're in, that we are not on a walk in the park. We are in a spiritual battle, even though we may not realize it sometimes. Second, we desperately learn need, we need to learn how to think Christianly and develop a Christian worldview. And this is actually probably several steps down or up, depending on how you look at it. Most of us just need to learn to think, period. Um, I find myself, it is so easy, instead of reading a book or going and researching about something, to just look on the internet and see what one person has said about it and then think that you know what you're talking about. And that is so unbelievably dangerous on so many fronts for our culture. And so learning to think uh, is important, but thinking Christianly is even more important. And that idea of developing a Christian worldview, and more about that later tonight. Um, lessons on the psychology of temptation. If you know what temptation looks like, smells like, feels like, um, the ways that it might come, you are much better able to resist. Also, habits to cultivate that deepen faith in Christ. We're going to really lean into that tonight. And then lessons on living a boldly Christian life. Part of my premise in this is that screw tape particularly wants to tempt the patient away from things that would enable him to lead a boldly Christian life. So by looking at what he wants to tempt him away from, we can get a pretty good catechesis of what we might want to lean into uh, in order to live that boldly Christian life, because that is the life in which there is joy. When you've got your life where you've got one foot in two kingdoms, there's not a lot of joy in that. But when you get over the fence and you are trying to live boldly for Christ, that's where the joy is. So last week we talked about the three prefaces, the uh, preface in the original published 1941 edition, the handwritten manuscript one that ties into the Space Trilogy, and then the one from the 1961 edition. This one I think is particularly helpful because he's got a lot of theology in the preface. Um, he talks about belief in the devil. Uh, remember, he talks about the whole idea there that the devil is not God's opposite. It's not dualism. Um, the devil is the opposite of the archangel Michael. Um, he is powerful, but God is infinitely more powerful. God is the only uncreated being. Um, he also talks about belief in angels, and he has that great discourse about the Victorian insipid <laughs> angels um, that want to, instead of saying, be not afraid, make you look like they're going to say, they're there. Um, <laughs> and uh, we need to recover a robust theology of angels, because angels and demons, in case you didn't notice it, are all over the New Testament. Mm -hmm. They're all over it. They're all over it. And we like to think, oh, that's a psychological manifestation. <laughs> but they, they are real. They're in the order of creation. So that's important. And then he also talks about what hell is like. And again, we have a lot of images of hell that are not particularly good um, in the culture in which we live today. And I think this one is particularly applicable, where he says um, the evil... Um, that is done in the world is conceived and ordered, moved, 
seconded, carried, and minuted in clean, carpeted, warmed, and well-lighted offices by quiet men with collars and cut fingernails and smooth, shaven cheeks who do not need to raise their voice. Hence, naturally enough, my symbol for hell is something like the bureaucracy of a police state or the offices of a thoroughly nasty business concern. And I think that's an important image to kind of get into your head because that's going to shape his dialogues here. Um, how do devils work together? He talks a lot about how friendship between devils is not possible. Um, devils are completely self-interested. They have no love. They have no use for anyone else. It is all about self-aggrandizement. And so their only way that they work together is if they can see a way that they can use the other devil for their own purposes. Um, the names of the devils, he said he just came up with things that sounded nasty, basically, <laughs> and that all the theories that people had were all wrong. And, um, and then he said that the great quotation about, did you do academic study on temptation? And he said, people forget there's a far less creditable way to learn about this, and that he says the evil of his own soul uh, is part of parcel of that. So last week, uh, we read letter one, and I wanted to just sort of recap some of the main things in here. So the first one uh, is that he talks about what the patient is reading. So that's a pretty good clue right there that the reading thing is important. And those of you that were in here before when we were talking about habits to cultivate that we can learn from the inklings, one of those is that they all read voraciously. They understood what it meant to love God with their mind. And for most of us, well, I can't speak for y'all. Y'all may be going to the library and checking out Thomas Aquinas each week. <laughs> I mean, I don't really know. But, you know, I think for a lot of us, if we read a book, it might be John Grisham. Not that John Grisham is bad, but that's not the kind of reading that Lewis is talking about here. So um, reading. So he talks about reading and then this whole idea about argument. And the screw tape says argument. Don't worry so much about argument because people don't understand logic anymore. Um, just talk about, you know, you want something. The patient wants things that are strong or stark or courageous. The philosophy of the future, progressive, not outdated antiquated, fusty, all of those kinds of things. So, and this whole idea of cognitive dissonance, Screwtape talks about that you can have millions of ideas floating around in your head that are absolutely contradictory to each other and yet believe them passionately. And our culture, I mean, Lewis wrote this in 1940, but we are so much more where he's talking about than the culture was even at that time. And then the second thing is he says that if you start talking about truth, you're really in trouble. And if you start talking about real rational argument with logic, you're really in trouble because that is something that God is good at. So he says what you want is propaganda. Propaganda, not stuff that you can argue with or have discourse about, but just shrilly voiced opinions and feelings. Not that we see a lot of that. Um, but that you don't want to have civil discourse or you particularly don't want the patient to think about anything that's really important, like the meaning of life or serving other people or what does it really mean to love. All of those big question kind of things, you don't want him having anything to do with that. So. Um, he says what you want to do is keep the patient focused on real life. Real life, a great way to understand what he means by real life is just look at a social media feed. So for Screwtape, real life is the Kardashians, CNN, Fox News, all of the different things that are coming at you and... Um, people that are Instagram celebrities. One thing you may not know is there are people that are famous for being famous um, on Instagram. You can follow them. 
It's really great. Um, <laughs> but that's the kind of thing he's talking about. That if you can keep people focused on stuff like that, reading People magazine as their only contact with reality, that you've won the battle. You don't want them to think about anything important. And so he talks about how there was this man who was doing this dangerous business of reading, and he was doing something particularly dangerous, reading in a beautiful place in the reading room of the British Museum, and 20 years' work started tottering just because this guy was reading. And the only way Screwtape was able to get that situation under control was to tell the guy that he needed to eat lunch because this was too important to think about on an empty stomach. And when he came out of this beautiful room, he was assaulted by the newsboy yelling about the war and the 73 bus for Victoria Station, and he immediately forgot everything that he was thinking about. That whole business of thinking about the kingdom of God, thinking about what is true, thinking about the transcendentals of truth, beauty, and goodness, all that went out the window because he's looking for lunch, he's hearing the newsboy, and he's watching and probably smelling the bus fumes from this bus. And I want you to just look for a minute at these pictures and think about the contrast. This was actually in an era when people were quiet in libraries. I don't know if any of you can remember that far back. Um, but people were quiet in libraries. And so he's reading in this place, and we talked about this last week, but libraries used to be built very intentionally with architecture that reflected scriptural truth, that the seat of all truth and glory and wisdom is with God. And so the libraries are pointed toward the heavens in the same way that churches and courts of justice all had high ceilings and were pointed to the heavens. And even as late as the 19th century, um, the latter part of it, if you go to the New York Public Library, which is not a bastion of spiritual conservatism, but if you go into the reading room in there, you will go in and you will find that the ceilings are way, way up there. And at the top of the ceiling is a beautiful mural of the blue sky with clouds. If you go to the library on Calhoun Street, you'll see ceiling tile. So we have dumbed down, and we don't think about things like this, but that sort of change affects our view of truth and of God and of wisdom and all of that. So Screwtape hated the fact that the guy was in there and that he was reading something that opened his heart and his mind to truth. So he concludes the letter saying that the, the good thing is that people can't focus on the unfamiliar when the stream of real life is in front of them. And that because of that, uh, they are easy prey to this kind of temptation. And then he says, don't use science. And then Lewis has this little dig. Um, sorry if you're a sociologist or an economist. But he says, the real sciences, um, like physics and biology and things like that, chemistry, uh, those are really dangerous. Because if you engage in the real sciences, they beg the question of where did these processes come from? Where did these equations come from? Where did the way that this fits together like an unbelievably complex jigsaw puzzle, where did that come from? And that starts people asking ontological questions, and that does not end well for Screwtape's team. So he doesn't want him to have anything to do with science, um, unless it's economics and sociology. And that what he wants him to do is to think that he knows everything because he's picked up from conversation or for us from the internet um, just enough to be dangerous, to carry on a cocktail party conversation and sound like he knows what he's talking about. And that is, I think, such an apt description of where our culture finds itself today. And when you try to 
talk about issues with people, it's very, very difficult. Everybody has an opinion and everybody has feelings. But in terms of people being able to marshal arguments about one point of view versus another, um, that seems to pretty much be gone. So I want to take a little excursion before we pull out some things that we can learn from that first letter into <laughs> Lewis's view about the importance of habits. This is something you don't hear about very much, but it's something that Lewis was very opinionated about. And you see it not only in the way that he lived his own life, but in his writing and particularly in his letters. So when you read the letters, you, you develop this understanding of how Lewis believed that in order to follow Christ, and remember we've used that expression from Lewis's secretary, that he was the most thoroughly converted man that he knew. So part of the reason for that is Lewis believed that it was important to set his life in such a direction and with such a structure and framework that it would encourage him toward godliness. And when Lewis became a Christian, it revolutionized what his daytimer looked like. And we fantasized in here before about wouldn't it be fun to find his daytimer if he had one. But when Lewis became a Christian, he started going to worship every morning at 8 o'clock in the morning, every morning. And some days he went to worship twice. So that's part of the stake in the ground. The Inklings meeting started where he was spending six to ten hours a week in deep fellowship with people who were also Christians. Um, he had a whole range of habits. One of them, he started meeting with his spiritual director every Friday afternoon without fail to pray. So there's this whole framework that didn't used to be there of habits that Lewis put into his life because he believed they were things that he could glean from scripture that would help him grow in his faith in Christ. So there's a little excerpt up here from letter 13, jumping ahead a little bit. And this is Screwtape talking to Wormwood about the patient. Let him, that is the patient, let him do anything but act. No amount of piety in his imagination and affections will harm us if we can keep it out of his will. As one of the humans has said, active habits are strengthened by repetition, but passive ones are weakened. The more often he feels without acting, the less he will be able ever to act. And in the long run, the less he will be able to feel. And this is, it's a little abstract, but it's very important because basically what he's saying is that feelings are cheap, essentially, that you can feel compassion um, <laughs> Lovely as that was. Um, you can feel compassion. You can think about, oh, I have such a heart for the poor. But if you don't ever do anything, if you don't ever give money, if you don't pray, if you don't go to Tricanic, if you don't do anything, I'm sorry, I hope I'm not stepping on any toes, but I'm sorry to tell you, you don't really have a heart for the poor. You just don't. You've got a lot of feelings. And that's what he's trying to get at here. And this, we are so susceptible, well, at least I am. I am so susceptible to this. If I think I'm thinking about this issue a lot, then that means that I, I am growing in holiness in that issue. And unfortunately, it's usually, you know, it used to be the old expression is talk is cheap, but I would say feelings are cheap. We can have these feelings, but if we don't act, then we're utterly useless. And what Satan wants to do is to stop us from acting. Now, this little quotation is a condensation of what Lewis took from this other theologian who I bet you've never heard of, um, whose name is Joseph Butler. Has anybody ever heard of Joseph Butler? I've heard of him. Have you? That was more. I've heard of him, but I don't really know much about him. 
Well, so, see, you're a step ahead of me. I'd never heard of them until I started researching all of this. But the interesting thing is that Joseph Butler is somebody that we probably all should dig up some of his books and read, because this guy was amazing. He debated um, John Locke. He wrote treatises about philosophy. Um, he was a very prominent Anglican clergyman. He was the chaplain to Queen Caroline, the Bishop of Bristol, the Dean of St. Paul's Cathedral right after John Donne. Um, he was Bishop of Durham, and then this is a really bad title, but he was Clerk of the Closet. And the Clerk of the Closet, that's back when clerk meant cleric, and the closet is the king's bedchamber. So it meant he was actually the highest ranking priest to the royal family. He was the head chaplain to King George II. So he was probably George II's spiritual advisor when the king's silver was sent to St. Philip's in the 18th century. But he wrote a lot, and one of the things that he wrote a lot about was habits. So this part is a quotation from him, and it is uh, the prose is a little of that era. So just <laughs> hang in there with me. So in like manner, as habits belonging to the body are produced by external acts, so habits <laughs> of the mind are produced by the exertion of inward practical principles, i.e., by carrying them into act or acting upon them, the principles of obedience, of veracity, justice, and charity. But going over the theory of virtue in one's thoughts, talking well, and drawing fine pictures of it, this is so far from necessarily or certainly conducing to form a habit of it in him who thus employs himself, that it may harden the mind in a contrary course and render it gradually more insensible, i.e., form a habit of insensibility to all moral considerations. For from our very faculty of habits, passive impressions, by being repeated, grow weaker. Thoughts, by often passing through the mind, are felt less sensibly. Being accustomed to danger begets intrepidity, i.e., lessens fear. Being accustomed to distress lessens the passion of pity. Being accustomed to instances of others' mortality lessens the sensible apprehension of our own. And from these two observations together, that practical habits are formed and strengthened by repeated acts, and that passive impressions grow weaker by being repeated upon us, it must follow that active habits may be gradually forming and strengthening by a course of acting upon such and such motives and excitements, whilst these motives and excitements themselves are by proportionable degrees growing less sensible, i.e. are continually less and less sensibly felt even as the active habits strengthen. Right, I hope that made at least a little sense. <laughs> but the, the basic idea is that if you are thinking about, let's just go back to having a heart for the poor, you're thinking about the poor and the plight of the poor, and you think about it every day. And you think about it for a couple of hours, and it's so sad that the people are poor. But after a while, you've been thinking that every day. You might want to move on. You might want to start thinking about the plight of animals. Those poor animals that people eat. You, know, you, might, you might become really invested in that. And what happens is the more that you spend time just thinking about these things, it dulls you to the shock factor. And it's, it's that whole frog in the kettle syndrome that we've talked about before, that if you take a frog and drop him into a boiling pot of water, he jumps right out. But if you put him in a pot of cool water and turn the burner on underneath and it gradually heats up, he'll boil to death. And it's the same sort of thing. So. What Butler is saying here that Lewis really agrees with and weaves all through screw tape letters is that if there is something that is a command of scripture, for example, instead of spending a lot of time thinking about what might that mean, how, you know, all of those kinds of things, that maybe what you should do is actually go do it. 
And this is one of the things that I will say is really refreshing about working with teenagers. A lot of times when you work with teenagers, if they read something in scripture, they think they're actually supposed to do it. You know, whereas for me, or for many of us who are older, we think, well, you know, those just didn't really, didn't really mean that. I mean, that would be radical to do that. And what Lewis is suggesting here, I think, is that one of the chief delusions and enchantments that has been put on our age is this habit of passive thought where we hold in our minds some concepts of the kingdom of God, but we don't ever act on them. And the result of that is Satan doesn't have to do anything else because we're immobilized. We're sitting there watching the Clemson game. Not anything wrong with Clemson or watching football, but we're watching the Clemson game and we may be thinking a little bit about something spiritual. But we're not going to do anything while we're watching the Clemson game. You know, and the problem for most of us is that we go from the Clemson game to Nebraska dinner. Dinner or the Carolina game. Yes. Then you might need to go to a counselor after that. Or you might go to This Is Us and get your tissue box. You know, there, there are all sorts of things. But what happens is we go from one distraction to another distraction to another distraction to another distraction. And we think eventually when I get serious about my spiritual life, I'm going to actually do something about all this. And then you're dead. So. Sorry. <laughs> but part of the deal is that if we don't, realize the enchantment that we're under. You can't resist an enchantment until you know that you're under it. It's just like when we were reading The Silver Chair and the lady of the green kirtle is in there saying, there is no Aslan, there is no overworld. And finally, it takes Puddleglum going and sticking his foot in the fire and you get the nasty smell of burnt marshwiggle foot, and that breaks the enchantment, and they're like, oh, wait a minute, what are you talking about? So part of the deal for us with screw tape is I want it to be a wake-up call. So these are just, um, I, I could have come up with an entire book so you, you can thank the Lord that I only came up with five here, but five habits to annoy the devil. I, I want you to make annoying the devil one of your daily goals. And so these are some things that are in that first letter. And the great thing about this book is each one of these letters is going to have multiple lessons like this in it. So the first one is to connect thinking and doing. So not just think, oh, someday I should go to Tri-County Family Ministries. <laughs> That's a great thought to have. It's really great. And Tri-County Ministries is really great. But if you don't ever go, thinking about it isn't doing anyone any good. So you want to connect your thinking and doing. And this is the part where it's really scary. Consider what the guiding principles and values of your life are. Develop a coherent worldview and pattern your life and habits accordingly. And you can sort of tease out from what Screwtape is saying that this is the last thing that he wants the patient to do. He wants him to have all this muddled thinking. And just as an example of this, I want you to think about what would happen to a corporation that had no idea what its mission statement was. It had no filter for what businesses it should get involved with and it just kind of did what it felt like most of the time. That would probably not be what you would want your advisor to invest your retirement fund in stock of that company. What you want is a company that has got a laser-focused mission because those are the companies that know what they're about, and because they know what they're about, they know what they're not. And I want to just compare, and I want to step on any toes, but just think a little bit about Chick-fil-A versus Burger King. Chick-fil-A is laser focused on what they do and on their culture and what they do well. And they do not feel like they need to have 100 menu items. 
they have a very limited menu and they do it extraordinarily well. But if you go to Burger King, Burger King has tried all kinds of crazy stuff. And if you go into a Burger King, it doesn't look, feel, or smell the same way that a Chick-fil-A does. And part of what is true here is that when you live according to what you believe and there's congruity there, you have the possibility to leave, live a powerful, impactful life could go on and on about that. But Lewis is a great example of this because Lewis really did change his habits when he became a Christian. He didn't keep being just a normal Oxford Don. All right, the second thing, focus on universal issues. What is true, what is good, what is beautiful, rather than the immediate stream of ordinary life and busyness, i.e. set your mind on things above. And we've talked about this in here before, but this is Scripture tells us this, you know, not only the verse that we were doing before from Philippians about thinking about what is beautiful, true, noble, worthy of praise, but Colossians 3, set your mind on things above. This is very, very, very proactive, and you have to make yourself do this because our culture, the enchantment that we're under is making you focus on every single thing that Nancy Pelosi says, it's making you focus on every tweet that Donald Trump sends, it's making you think about the Kardashians. You know, it's just like, ugh, is that really where we are? And so when you think about those things, guess what? You become anxious and depressed. Whereas if you think about these things, it makes a huge difference. And this is directly connected to number three, spend time in beautiful places reading things that make you think and considering their implications. And we have a great gift because we live in one of the most beautiful cities in the world. And I'm not gonna ask you to raise your hand, but I wonder how many of you get out and actually walk around and look at where we live or walk by the water, or you know, any of those kinds of things. Because as we talked about last term in here, one of the things that Tolkien and Lewis believed was that part of Satan's scheme was to get you to wake up in the morning in the dark, get in a little dark, ugly car, and drive to a dark, ugly office cubicle with a window that looks out on the air shaft and stay in your little dark cubicle all day and then get in your dark little ugly car and drive back to your Soviet pancake-style architecture <laughs> apartment building where it's like a little rabbit warren and then go sit in there and watch a box. Mm -hmm. And if that's what you do, guess what? The heavens declare the glory of God, but you're not paying any attention. So the part of this deal is that we have got to put ourselves where we see beauty, because scripture tells us that when we look at the creation, the work of God's hands, it should move our hearts. And when you look up at the beauty of a starlit sky or the moon, you know, or that beautiful marsh, there's so much beauty. And what Lewis says, I love this quotation, he says, gratitude exclaims very properly, how good of God to give me this. Mm -hmm. And that's a really good place to start, but don't end there. And he says, adoration, which is much more than gratitude, and adoration and worship are very much the same thing. Adoration says, what must be the quality of that being whose far off and momentary coruscations are like this? One's mind runs back up the sunbeam to the sun. And coruscations is not a word we use very often, but what that means is if you have, if somebody in here had a beautiful three-carat diamond ring and it was under this light and you would see those glints just flying off of it, that's a coruscation. And Lewis is here talking about a light beam. And so he says when you look at that light beam, and you see the wonder of that, sort of that godlike kind of thing, like when you see that beam that comes from the clouds, and you look at the beauty of that, and you see all of the little bits of light and color in there, and you think that momentary 
profligate flinging out of that kind of beauty all over the place, if that is just an example of the little glint coming off the rock, how must God really be and how worthy of our praise and adoration? But the problem is if you're in your little car watching the television, you're not going to be thinking about that. And yeah, one of the things, part of the reason Charleston is the iconic city that is, everybody's moving here and tourists are coming here, is that, and someday I'm going to give a lecture about this, but not to y'all, so don't worry. Um, <laughs> there is a theology of architecture that most people have forgotten, but Charleston is largely built on that theology of architecture where the golden mean, vanishing points, long vistas, human scale, light windows, all of that is all part of the theology of architecture. And the result of that kind of architecture is that when you walk into it, it gladdens your heart and it brings peace to you in a way that confused, ugly, not human scale architecture has the opposite effect on people. And so making sure that you're spending time in beautiful places, reading things that make you think and considering their implications, um, that is unbelievably important. Now, most of us would say that is a leisure time activity that is to be done when my to-do list is all crossed off. And if you're like me, your to-do list is never all crossed off. So if you don't make time to do that, you're dead in the water with this habit. But Satan would love for you not to do that. So I would encourage you to annoy him by building that into your schedule. Then the fourth thing is explore the real sciences and the wonder of the earth and the heavens. If you have not read any books about this by people who are Christians or watched even some YouTube things, I would commend that to you. There's some really good books by Stephen Meyer um, that I would commend to you. Um, there's a great book um, also by John Lennox that I would commend to you. There, if you want to go find some good stuff about this on YouTube, Veritas Forum, which is a ministry in a lot of Ivy League colleges that brings in brilliant Christians to debate, um, they have a lot of really good stuff on this that's fairly accessible. Um, but there's a whole world of wonder there that we cut ourselves off from because we've given science over to the atheist. But there are still tons of people who are Christians who are doing brilliant work in the sciences that point you toward God. And then the last thing, love God with your mind. This means being proactive, thinking Christianly <coughs> and critically rather than just going with the flow. Now, remember in the letter, Screwtape says, don't let him get near the real sciences. Don't let him read in the beautiful building. And certainly, don't let him think critically. Let him just sort of take it all, have every opinion, <coughs> hold all of them at the same time, and not really invest anywhere. So these are five habits. I'm not saying any of these habits are easy, but if you begin building these habits into your life, it will change the way that you walk through your day. And part of it is just learning to lift your eyes to see. We, we are just really not good at that. And I would encourage you sometime to walk around Charleston and just look at, do you know what a cornice is? Um, Cornices like the, the molding of the top of a building right before the roof. Just look at cornices. Just walk around and look at the variety of cornices. Or look at light and shadow with wrought iron. Um, it is just unbelievable. But the problem is we're so dulled to all this because we're under this enchantment of the ordinary that we just miss it. And you may think, well, what does this have to do with worshiping Jesus? I will tell you, it has a lot to do with worshiping Jesus. Because if you lose the connection of Jesus and the kingdom of God is the source of all truth, beauty, and goodness, we're sunk. Because if you believe that it doesn't matter whether things are true, whether things are beautiful, whether things are good, you have bought into relativism. And scripture is full of all of these descriptive passages 
about the beauty of the temple, the beauty of the creation. And if you look at God's instructions for building things, it doesn't say go to Walmart and buy a little tent. You know, it is very specific about what's in there, and it is quality and beauty and all of that. All right, so. Um, all right, we're going to go just a little bit into letter two. So uh, the first part of letter two. My dear Wormwood, I note with grave displeasure that your patient has become a Christian. Do not indulge the hope that you will escape the usual penalties. Indeed, in your better moments, I trust you would hardly even wish to do so. In the meantime, we must, we must make the best of the situation. There is no need to despair. Hundreds of these adult converts have been reclaimed after a brief sojourn in the enemy's camp and are now with us. All the habits, oh look, there's that word. All the habits of the patient, both mental and bodily, are still in our favor. So hold on to that thought. So part of what we're going to see in letter two is that screw tape has a deep understanding of how to get people to believe that their conversion didn't really happen and that it doesn't make any difference and that it doesn't really matter what you believe. That is much easier than having to have a complete rejection of faith. Um, part of the problem is we think the devil deals in black and white. And Lewis does a masterful job of showing that it is shades of gray. Well, that's probably not a good term to use. But <laughs> not those shades of gray. Um, but uh, one, one of the things that I think is really important here is that the, this whole idea of habits and what you let into your head is unbelievably important. And I want to just read this last paragraph. We're going to unpack this letter more next time. He says, you may ask whether it is possible to keep such an obvious thought from occurring even to a human mind. And in this case, the obvious thought is that everybody's a hypocrite, including me. And then he says, it is, Wormwood, it is. Handle him properly, and it simply won't come into his head. He has not been anything like long enough with the enemy to have any real humility yet. What he says, even on his knees, about his own sinfulness is all parrot talk. At bottom, he still believes he has run up a very favorable credit balance in the enemy's ledger by allowing himself to be converted, and thinks that he is showing great humility and condescension in going to church with these smug, commonplace neighbors at all. Keep him in that state of mind as long as you can. And this is, this is so true, because the self-awareness and this whole idea of what you let into your mind and what you're thinking about is so unbelievably important. And the difference between feeling and acting is so unbelievably important. And something that I was going to talk about at some length tonight, but I will have to save for next week, is I want to give a little book plug um, for something that's not written by Lewis or one of the Inklings. Uh, this is a book that is called The Common Rule, and the subtitle of it is Habits of Purpose for an Age of Distraction. Not that that might be relevant for any of us, but it is written by a guy named Justin Early. And Justin Early went to the University of Virginia. He's young. He might be 30. Uh, went to the University of Virginia, um, was a brilliant student in English at Virginia, which is no mean feat. Um, and then went on to Georgetown Law School and did brilliantly at Georgetown Law School. Deeply Christian, really involved in the Christian Study Center at Virginia, where he met his wife. They sensed a call to the mission field, and even though he was in the top 10 in his law school class, when he graduated, they went to China as missionaries for three years. That's pretty different. Most people don't do that. So they did that. And they had a very fruitful time, and then they felt that they were being called back to the United States. So he got a job um, as a mergers and acquisitions lawyer. And after he had worked for about six months, he started falling into a profound depression. Mm -hmm. 
And he thought, why is it that in this country that is free and where there are churches everywhere, my spiritual life is absolutely anemic compared to what it was like when I was in China where there was absolutely no support. And he has this brilliant quotation when he says, I realized that all of the Christian habits that I had, or rather the, the Christian things, he didn't say habits, it was like the, my, my Christianity was window dressing in my life, and the architecture of my life was all the secular culture of success. And I think that there is a lot of truth to that for most of us. And so the book is about his idea of trying to go back to what was normative in Christianity up until about 150 years ago, which is that if you were Christian, you were your community was your church, and you were at your church and with that community a lot. And that was where you went when you were in trouble and when you were happy and everything else. And now we go to church like we go to the grocery store. And so it's a very different way of living. And he says we're, we're wrong and that we need, to, we need to reclaim that New Testament understanding of community. And we also need to reclaim what people used to think of as normative for Christians. Those of you who grew up in the Episcopal Church or the Anglican Church know that when you look in the prayer book, one of the sections that is most prominently featured is the section for individual and family devotions. And it expects that you are going to be using that three times a day for morning prayer, noonday prayer, and evening prayer. Now, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand if you do that every day. But that used to be normative. That was a habit that people did. And so the book is basically about trying to recover habits that enable you to change the architecture of your life. So we're going to talk some more about that later because it makes a, it's a very, I think, good counterpoint to screw tape because it's taking a lot of the same issues but from a slightly different angle. So just to finish up tonight, um, again, the same quotation that I love, our cause is never more in danger than when a human no longer desiring but still intending to do our enemy's will looks round upon a universe from which every trace of him <coughs> seems to have vanished and asks why he has been forsaken and still obeys. So um, with that, uh, let me close this with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your love and mercy and grace. And Lord, we confess to you the pride, hypocrisy, and disobedience that we so often experience in our lives. Lord, I pray for myself and for all of us that you would break the enchantment of thinking that when we feel deeply about something, we have somehow done something that is pleasing in your eyes. Lord, we pray that you would help us learn to be people who live out what we believe, that we would do what Jesus says that we would hear Jesus' words and we would do them. Because in that, Lord, we know that your kingdom comes and your blessing and your ability to use us as agents of change for your kingdom. Lord, we thank you for this time and for this book and pray you would bless our study of it. And we pray all this in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. 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 Amen.